I didn't really start learning about Islam until I was in graduate school. It was there, as part of my degree in Jewish history, that I was first introduced to the world of Andalus, that is, Islamic Spain, an inclusive society wherein Jews, Christians, and Muslims, and others, all seemingly got along. They shared texts, they shared philosophy, they shared liturgy, and from it came some of the greatest advancements in science, mathematics, poetry, technology, and literature. The height of the Golden Age of Spain was probably somewhere between the 9th and 12th centuries of this era. A similar period of time took place in Baghdad under the Abbasid dynasty a little bit earlier. I was talking to someone recently and made the suggestion that since that period of time, we really haven't made any progress at all. And in fact, given the constant state of war and the dire straits the planet is in, it seems more accurate to say that since then, we've kind of been moving backwards. I was first introduced to the wonders of Umayyad Spain in a medieval Jewish history class taught by Professor Benjamin Gampel, who modeled not only great approach to content, but also great pedagogy. I learned a great deal of content from him and a tremendous amount about how to teach history. But before that time, I really hadn't learned much about Islam at all. Since then, though, I have made it a point to teach all my high school students about Islam, about its history, about its philosophy, which is vast and rich, and about its basic fundamental tenets. One thing I find that I can't get away from is the need to answer the question, why is Islam so synonymous with violence? The more I learn about Islam as an adult, the more I realize that the obsessive focus on whether Islam is a violent religion or not is very much a function of media fear-mongering and the need to captivate eyeballs and ears. That people out there like Sam Harris and Bill Maher should have such resounding voices on the matter is absurd to me and, in fact, quite saddening. Those two individuals know little about Islam and, in fact, know little about anything other than trying to widen their audiences and making themselves more money. Their hate-filled rhetoric is all about sensationalism and much less about propagating the truth. In fact, their efforts to my mind are more pernicious than those of, say, your average run-of-the-mill Fox News pundit who's talking about Islamic terrorism, because at least the Fox News people are more transparent about it. They don't claim to be open-minded, tolerant, and liberal. To continue to bang the drum of radical Islam, Islamic extremism, Islamic terrorism, is to engage in hate speech and Islamophobia. So my interests these days are much more connected to theology, philosophy, liturgy, textuality, history. And I leave answering that perennial question, put this way, for example, why does Islam often lead to terrorism, to another. His name is Mahfouz Maherzad, and he's the president of the United Islamic Association of Lancaster County, and an adjunct political science professor at Chestnut Hill College and Millersville University. He and I took part in a panel discussion back in May with three other individuals, all of whom represented different religious backgrounds. We were gathered on a panel at the Community Mennonite Church by the Peace Action Network of Lancaster and put the following question, Does religion lead to war? 
More specific questions were asked of each of us, and each of us, from a Hindu, Buddhist, Mennonite, Christian, Muslim, and Jewish perspective, attempted to answer the question. In the selection that I reproduce here, you'll hear Professor Meherzad first give brief background information about himself, and then answer the question put specifically to him. I was born in the United States. However, my parents are immigrants from Afghanistan. In fact, they're refugees. And that's, I think that's salient, given political events right now. They're refugees from Afghanistan. At the time, they came to a United States that was very, very welcoming of refugees, uh, specifically refugees from Afghanistan, because they were stud- uh, suffering under uh, the yoke of Soviet imperialism, or communist imperialism. And now it's kind of interesting how things have have changed, how uh, Russia has a place in the White House now, and uh, refugees don't. <laughs> Rather interesting. But I guess the world changes and the world moves on. Um, as for myself, additionally, uh, I'm professionally, rather, I teach as an adjunct at Mosul University, except for this semester, and I'm currently teaching at Chestnut Hill College. Regarding what I would say I do in a personal capacity, uh, for peace, to work towards peace, both in this community and within my own life, I would say that it mirrors and parallels what every Muslim that I have had the pleasure of knowing uh, attempts to do. And regarding this subject of peace, this topic of peace, but especially a 21st century peace, specifically a 21st century peace, given the problems that we're confronting in the 21st century and the problems that we're confronting in contemporary America, there's a tradition, there's a verse in the Qur'an that's especially appropriate, especially relevant, and one that we, as Muslims, Muslims that I know of, Muslims in the audience currently, and Muslims that I've known throughout my entire life, keep in view. And a statement in the uh, hadith, and the hadith literature, the statements of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, that sum up very succinctly and very beautifully uh, what peace is, but not necessarily just what peace is, but what does it mean to be a human? What does it mean? What does humanity mean when we appeal to someone's sense of humanity? And in the Quran, there is a verse which says explicitly and clearly that God is addressing humanity, and God says to humanity, O humans, or O mankind, humankind, know that I created you with difference, meaning in tribes. I created you with, with tribes and nations, and I spread you out throughout the world for the express purpose of recognizing. Meaning, difference itself is not a cause for division. But that these differences are beautiful, they should be celebrated, they should be recognized. Uh, We shouldn't gloss over our differences. Unfortunately, I think in the American discourse right now, we want to gloss over our differences. Uh, The United States, I believe, is the only contemporary multi-ethnic state that refuses to acknowledge it's a multi-ethnic state. Uh, and that's at a variance of what the Quran says. As a Muslim, as a Muslim, I'm uncomfortable with that. I, I'm deeply uncomfortable when we deny our differences. But in addition to that, in the Hadith, uh, meaning this body of literature, that's a collection of the statements of our Prophet Muhammad peace be upon him, which we believe are divinely inspired, but we can't claim our exact the exact words of the divine. The Prophet Muhammad peace be upon him, sallallahu alaihi wasallam, he says. Many, many things. There are thousands of hadith. But our scholars, our, for want of a better term, our clergymen, have said you could boil down Islam, the whole of Islam, to just four maxims, four statements from the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. 
I won't go into the, the additional three. If anyone's interested, please contact me at the end of this forum. But one of those four is a statement where our Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, said, no one has faith, faith, meaning a true faith, anyone who claims to have faith in God or in a higher power, not a one has faith until they want for their brother what they want for themselves. And brotherhood here, it's not restricted to brotherhood through blood ties or necessarily even religious brotherhood, but a brotherhood or a sisterhood, a common humanity. So until we want for our brothers, until we want for our neighbors, until we want for our sisters, until we want for our fellow human beings, what we want for ourselves, uh, we, we can't claim to have faith. Now here's the question put to Professor Mehrzad by Brad Wolf, Secretary of Peace Action Network of Lancaster. In spite of attempts by many to assure Americans that Islam is a peaceful religion, the image of the violent jihadists persists. What element of Islam attracts these soldiers who fight for ISIS or Al-Qaeda, and how does Islam promote peace to millions of other adherents? Uh, how much time do I have? <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, how much? Can you give me ten minutes? Okay, okay. Please try to keep me on time, okay? Uh, as you can tell by my kind of joke, uh, like, this is a very complex topic. Uh, and one that I do feel comfortable speaking about simply because of my background, I'm, I guess I didn't go into it, but I actually teach political science for a living. And I actually do security studies as my specialty. And I'm actually writing a dissertation on this topic about specifically about what causes militant, uh, rather, what causes militant Islamist mobilization, what causes political or nonviolent Islamist mobilization. So, uh, given that I'm writing a 300 page magnum opus about this. Uh, you can see this going to be kind of difficult to summarize in 10 minutes, but I'm going to do my best. First, I'd like to take uh, some uh, intellectual exception uh, to the way that the question was written, not to, not to critique you, but just the way it's often proposed or partly presented in society. I object that there's anything, any element, I object to the claim that there's any element of Islam that attracts violent individuals or that breeds violence. I, I categorically reject that. Uh, but then the question is, I mean, obviously the whole world's not lying to you when these, these people are committing what they're committing. They're obviously committing in the name of Islam. So I'd like to just give you a one-minute brief um, bit of background as far as history goes, and then we'll try to go into depth about as to why it is, at least the appearance, why it's the appearance that there's something about Islam that attracts these violent individuals, and hopefully maybe I could expand some more in the Q&A session. First, uh, considering even the term terrorism, because Al-Qaeda and ISIS are both presented as terrorist organizations, uh, the word terrorism, its genesis, is not with Islam or Al-Qaeda or uh, ISIS. In fact, the first use of this term in the modern era that we see is in 1881, uh, when you had anarchists all over the world uh, committing acts of violence. And in fact, suicide terrorism begins with them uh, in 1881. And I want to make sure I have my references. It was Ignacy Grenovitsky, who committed a suicide attack against Tsar Alexander II's Winter Palace. William McKinley, famous American president, I'm joking. Okay, but the you know, American president uh, who was assassinated by an anarchist uh, in an act of terrorism. Uh, 
when it comes to suicide terrorism or suicide killing, a lot of people think, okay, there must be something about Islam, something about this bizarre claim that there are 71 virgins or something wait, waiting for someone who blows themselves up in a crowded marketplace. I, I assure you, I've never come across this reference. And I read, I assure you, I read, I've never come across this. But uh, we see that the kamikaze during World War II, they were not Muslim, they were Japanese. Uh, they were not fighting in the name of religion, yet they were performing these suicide attacks and acts of what today, if it wasn't for the fact that they were going, that they were targeting military targets, we'd call them suicide bombings or homicide bombings. Uh, between 1980 and 2003, 137 suicide attacks were carried out by an organization called the Tamil Tigers in Sri Lanka. They were not a religious organization. If anything, they were a quasi or pseudo-Marxist organization. They didn't believe in an afterlife. Yet they were performing these suicide attacks. And in fact, to this day, they lead the world in suicide attacks. What they're able to do in 23 years. And it was uh, the suicide belt. The suicide belt that you hear about now being used in Iraq and Afghanistan and elsewhere was created by the Tamil Tigers, a Sri Lankan, non-Muslim, non-religious, Marxist group. So uh, any, any idea that there's somehow something unique either about Islam or religion, that there has to be some sort of belief in an afterlife to compel people, or a religious justification to compel individuals to take innocent life and to take their own life in the process, is just faulty. The historical record doesn't bear that out. But moving on. Uh, what I would also have to say is that with terrorism, and this is part of what we, we learn if you take a political science class or if you, you study this in depth, terrorism in general is a weapon of the weak. That's not to say a weapon of those with whom we ought to sympathize. But strong groups and strong nations, uh, strong movements don't engage in terrorism. Uh, why? Because they have better means to pursue their objectives. Uh, even Al-Qaeda, even if we put aside uh, if we put aside the, the question of violence or non-violence, why up till now have we not seen ISIS or Al-Qaeda use their F-16s or their stealth bombers to commit an attack anywhere in the world? Uh, long story short, they don't have any. So, uh, in fact, they don't even have, they don't even have the capacity of most guerrilla groups. So, they engage in suicide, uh, pardon me, terrorism, in fact, suicide terrorism, not because they have no other option to pursue their agenda, but if once they decided to take that violent, that violent tact, or go to, uh, that violent tactic to pursue an end, this is why they engage in terrorism. So it's clearly a weapon of the weak, and weak in another sense, in that they lack widespread support. The mere fact that they use terrorism, they use violence, this is indicative of the lack of a widespread support for their cause and for their movement in India. Mahatma Gandhi, why was he able to use nonviolence so effectively? He had the numbers. When you have hundreds of millions of people on your side, uh, you need not fire many shots, you need not kill many people. Uh, whereas these terrorists and their goal is this establishment of some sort of worldwide, uh, they pervert the term, but caliphate, uh, this doesn't have the type of support among the Muslim world, because if it did, if it had support even in the tens of thousands, they wouldn't have to be committing these suicide attacks and they wouldn't have to be blowing themselves up in the process. So I thought it bore mentioning, bears mentioning that these groups do not have widespread support. If they did, they wouldn't have to engage in terrorism. Plain and simple. But the question is, why then is it that Islam or the image of Muslims is so wrapped up with this 
terrorism. We, we don't hear about anarchists committing an anarchist. Why is it now we hear about Muslims committing this anarchist? What I would say is that it's not Islam, and please note, if anyone's taking note, this is the professor of me. It's not Islam that attracts, that attracts these violent elements. Rather, it is Islamist terrorist groups. Islamist terrorist groups, I would say, are nothing but cults of death. They are uh, nihilistic cults. They are cults. If you think back to your understanding of what a cult is, what do cults often do? Those people who are uh, attracted to cults, they are attracted often, they are those individuals in society that find themselves rather shy or socially awkward, often not accepted, dislodged, either because they've recently left home or they've suffered a divorce, they were abandoned as children, they really didn't have a strong social support network, and they're looking for meaning in life. They're looking for something to provide them with meaning, something that brings them from being this mundane nobody to becoming a somebody. And what happens is that Islam, since in these societies, Islam provides the symbols and vocabulary for resistance. It provides the ideological coloring to make these cults seem like something more than cults. If someone were to come up to any individual and say, you know what, would you like to die? A few people would say, yes, I'm young. But if you give it that coloring and say, you know what, when you get some perverted figure like with these cults, I mean, isn't it always interesting that the cult leaders are the people who give up nothing? And yet it's often the, those who follow them who are expected to give up their family ties and expected to give up money. And isn't it funny that these, these heads of these, these military organizations, they're never the ones strapping bombs to themselves. They're never the ones that are performing uh, an act of terror. Instead, they get these as often young, impressionable youth uh, if, if you follow the news, whenever you hear about a homegrown terror, time and again, you see it's someone who often was not a Muslim, was someone who didn't have many friends, was shy and awkward, came from, if not a broken home, at least they came from the type of home where they didn't have the type of structure that becoming a part of a militant group would provide. When you become part of a cult or a militant group, what do you have? If, if nothing else, you have structure. It gives you this formulaic... It, uh, this formulaic set of, of interactions with individuals that, you provide, that provides you with comfort. And what are you willing to do when you become a part of a cult or a street gang? Uh, what you, uh, anyone who knows anything about street gang, what's one of the biggest things you have to make sure that you're willing to do? I'm willing to die. For what? For a street corner? Yeah, because I, I need to stand for something. And so likewise, the same psychological profile that those who are attracted to street gangs in the United States or cults around the world is largely the profile of those individuals who end up joining these terror groups. And if, if once more, I'm cognizant of the fact that someone might say, okay, why don't we have Christian terror groups? Why don't we have Jewish terror groups? Because in the Christian world, in the Jewish world, in the Buddhist world, we also have people who might be disaffected, dislodged, looking for belonging. That's where it becomes slightly complex. Not slightly complex. One documentary could, could give you enough history about it. But it's because largely, largely it's in the Muslim world. Uh, this area full of natural resources, much like Africa, full of natural resources, having a very terrible colonial legacy, a legacy of grievance, 
that you have hate entrepreneurs, grievance entrepreneurs, who decide to capitalize on these very legitimate grievances, uh, historical legacies that I can't even go into here. There, there'd be no way I teach a course on this. So sign up if you want to, to, to learn more about that. But historical grievances and a robbing and raping of pillaging, uh, pillaging of resources, uh, the disconnect that globalization is, occur, is, is created between secured identities and the identities that are under attack here in the 20th century. Uh, this, this is why that this is why you have those militant groups, but why they give themselves that veneer of Islam is because that's the idiom of the society they live in. It provides the symbols and vocabulary for resistance. So I hope that, oh, 11 minutes, but I hope that doesn't sum Surely this answer but scratches the surface. Professor Meherzad himself references several historical and ideological strains that beg further investigation. For me, though, the crucial idea here is that disenfranchisement serves as ground zero for quote-unquote radicalization. This is economic as well as social disenfranchisement, which has its roots in colonialism. A relevant follow-up question, which Professor Meherzad quickly alludes to, is why don't we have Christians blowing themselves up and driving into crowds of people? To me, the answer is quite simple. For the most part, around the world, mainstream Christianity is woven into the fabric of the dominant culture and has, in the case of the Middle East certainly, been instrumental in a good portion of social and economic destruction over the past couple of centuries. I recognize this is not the case everywhere. Take Syria and Turkey as excellent counterexamples. Still, the narrative here should include the exploits of neoliberalism and almost exclusively in myriad stories we hear about Islamic terrorism, it does not. Allow me to fantasize a moment. Let's say about an article in the New York Times or the Washington Post which states, ISIS bombed targets in Mosul today again because they're still angry about the Sykes-Picot Agreement which carved up the Middle East in 1916 without regard for the complex pastiche of ethnic and religious diversity in the region. Or more recently, the purely opportunistic war for oil dominance fought by the United States and a handful of its allies in the late 20th century geopolitical experiment called neoliberalism, which, let's face it, is just another word for imperialism. Or even more recently, in response to the brutal repressive Assad regime, which pitted a powerful Alawite minority against both Shia and Sunni Muslims, a regime that routinely imprisoned, tortured, and bombed its own civilians for decades, without even a peep from Western powers in opposition. Ah yes, wouldn't that be a breath of fresh air? My thanks to the Peace Action Network of Lancaster for allowing me to use the audio from the May 13th panel discussion. In upcoming episodes of What We Will Abide, I'll reproduce other answers from other participants from that panel, including my own, which, admittedly, were tinged with, let's say, a patina of cynicism. Cynicism about the role that, historically, Jews, Judaism, and now the current state of Israel have played in the pursuit of peace. Again, I thank you for tuning in to this episode of What We Will Abide. 
You can find older episodes of this show on iTunes and Overcast and on my website, samshindler.com, and on the What We Will Abide Facebook page. I also encourage you to check out my other new venture, a podcast called Wonder With Us, which is about watching the hit show The Wonder Years with our children and getting some unique perspective from eight- and five-year-olds about the show, even when things might be a little bit over their heads. You can find those shows on my website as well, and in addition on iTunes and Overcast or wherever you get your podcasts these days. Also, if you're in a generous mood and you'd like to leave an iTunes review, I really would appreciate that as that helps newer listeners find the show more easily. The music you're listening to is generously provided by Nick Peterson. Once again, thanks for listening and more to come.